Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from EPAM Continuum. Information is a great thing, isn't it? Theoretically, the more we know, the better we'll be able to make informed choices that help us achieve the things that we want in life. For example, once I learned the impact that plastic straws had on the environment, I immediately stopped reaching for them as a default. Easy peasy. And there are plenty of much more critical examples that have life or death consequences. For example, helping people in Liberia better understand the spread of Ebola during the epidemic and the steps they could take to stay healthy. We often take for granted that the spread of information is a good thing, or that people always make rational choices based on facts. But what if facts are coming from a source that hasn't earned our trust yet? Or what if certain circumstances are leading people to act in ways that run counter to their best interests? Ultimately, having more information might not automatically mean improved outcomes. The way information is collected, how it's reviewed by the target audience, and the methods used to communicate it all shape its ability to make an impact. But thankfully, there are some smart folks tackling this problem from a variety of angles, two of whom happen to be currently teaching and working out of MIT, just a few minutes away from our office. Lily Sai is an associate professor of political science at MIT and the founder and faculty director of the MIT Governance Lab, or GovLab, a group of political scientists who work collaboratively with quote-unquote real people on the ground around citizen engagement and government accountability. And Sarah Williams is an associate professor of technology and urban planning at MIT and also the director of the Civic Data Design Lab at MIT's School of Architecture and Planning. The Civic Data Design Lab works with data, maps, and mobile technologies to develop interactive design and communication strategies that expose urban policy issues to broader audiences. Lily and Sarah came by for a chat with EPAM Continuum's Lee Moreau, Principal in Service and Experience Design. They talked about the risks of people disengaging when faced with new information, the useful implications that can be found when there's missing data, and how unchecked assumptions about what's important to people can result in failed interventions. Let's tune in. Hi, Lily. Hi, Sarah. Thank you both for joining us here today. Um, we're doing something a little bit different. Initially, I sort of thought of this as the convening of two brilliant minds. And then over the weekend when I was thinking of it, I was like frightened, like, ah, oh, it sounds a bit like a first date. But what I'm trying to do, and, and both of those ideas sound really exhilarating, but also a little bit scary. So this is going to be something new. Um, but I know you both from your work at MIT, and I think... Uh, after talking to each of you about the work that you're doing, I, I said, well, do you know, do you know Lillian? Do you know Sarah? And, and you didn't. So I tried to introduce the two of you. And uh, in just chatting briefly before this, uh, this interview, this conversation, I think there's going to be some interesting areas of overlap. So I'd love to hear about your work and talk about yourselves and the work that you're doing. Um, it'd be great if you could start by introducing yourself. So Sarah, do you want to Great. Um, so my name is Sarah Williams. <laughs> um, I'm an associate professor of technology and urban planning, and I also run something called the Civic Data Design Lab. And my work is really about using data and data visualization to affect policy change. Um, and really thinking about new ways that we can communicate big data to broader audiences um, so that really allow them to engage um, and affect their own change and take it on. And Lily? Uh, I'm Lily Tsai. I'm a professor in the political science department, and I also run a research group called the MIT GovLab, which is a group of political scientists who are interested in working with practitioners. So. NGOs, government actors, um, 
who are interested in innovation and citizen engagement and government responsiveness. So what we try to do is to co-design and um, co-research um, interventions and programs that help to bridge the gap between citizens and government. Okay. So as you both know, uh, we use at, here at Continuum, we use a lot of human-centered design methodologies as the foundation of our work. It's really the core of what we do in many, in many ways. Um, but a sort of simple view of human-centered approaches is that they're predicated on the basic assumption that informed people will tend to behave based on how choices in their lives connect to their deeply held beliefs. That the things that they do in the marketplace, at home, with their families and their lives, are connected in some sense to the things that they care about most. Um, but embedded in all this is a sort of f basic free market assumption or capitalist assumptions and implications and all that. And I'm wondering, and it, I think it's revealed in some of each of your work, what it, uh, the times when people don't have free will, where there are resource constraints, where there are not clear choices, a situation where there might be food lines or some other barriers or some oppression. Um, you both work in contexts that challenge our assumptions about free will and expression, and I'd love if you could talk about examples where this has surfaced in your work. I mean, I think that's a really important consideration and question um, that people face a lot of constraints, and I think that um, I think the hardest part is when um, we they face constraints that we we almost don't that that they're that we perceive are of their own making mm -hmm. um, that um, you know. Um, I mean, what's a good example? Um, you know, one issue that we've been thinking a lot about lately is um, uh, this problem of fake news and trust in institutions and, um, and you know, it's so, and anti-corruption. So actually, like, we've been doing some research around anti-corruption and whether or not, um, you know, anti-corruption initiatives, anti-corruption campaigns are, um, have positive or negative effects in the long run. And um, there are a lot of reasons to think that they have negative effects because um, the more people learn about, you know, even if you're trying to stamp out corruption, the more people learn about corruption, they actually update their beliefs about how much corruption there is. And so they trust the government less. And so actually, instead of um, pressuring for less corruption, they um, become really disillusioned and cynical. Um, and so, um, you know, it's an interesting question. Like, do you even launch an anti-corruption initiative in the first place when ultimately a lot of the times the outcome that you see is um, increasing disillusionment and exit um, from the political system? So um, there are often a lot of unintended negative consequences when we make assumptions, I think, about um, people's motivations and beliefs. Like, we think that they should be a certain way, but they're not. Did you find this, this is part of what you found in the work in the Ebola crisis? Uh, Liberia too, yeah, right? it's a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, um, the anti-corruption research I've been working on lately is um, it's a combination of what's going on in China, but also in places like the Philippines um, or Tanzania. Um, so, um, but in terms of the work during the Ebola epidemic in Liberia, um, that was another really interesting issue of um, you know how you mount an informational campaign, a public health informational campaign that is intended to um, have, you know, have consequences for the public good. Um, but the problem is when people don't trust the source of the information, um, you can't have that impact. You know, they, um, I mean, not only did they not trust the source of the information, but they thought the source was trying to do them, you know, ill, they had ill intent behind it. Um, so, yeah. 
And, yeah. and Sarah? Yeah, so I mean, I guess you know, when I think about that question, I was thinking about what are the barriers in my work. I mean, barriers is access to data um, or access to information to make the kind of informed decisions that you want. And I think what I try to do is really make that data appear where it doesn't exist um, or um, uh, help uh, communities generate that data or even uh, identify, I feel like, Missing data tells you a lot more than you might think. So places where we have no information tells us that a resource is missing or constrained. So I guess what I'm thinking about is um, I've done a lot of work in China where information is tightly controlled, um, yet there are sources of data that you can gather um, in which citizens can make um uh, their own data analytics. So we use a lot of social media data in China. And even though social media data does get deleted for some of the most contentious posts, but um, they do talk about their communities, what they like, what they don't like, and that data can be used to um, make some decisions. So we use that to identify uh, vibrancy of communities, but really identify communities that have heavy amounts of vacancy um, because they don't appear on social media. And I think this is a real epidemic in China um, right now, uh, kind of the mass amount of development. Um, I think of it as the foreclosure crisis before it happened. Like we keep de They keep developing housing, but nobody actually is moving into that housing and identifying where it is would be somewhat like identifying the foreclosure crisis before it happens. Um, and so we use social media data to try to identify those locations. So and kind of changing the lack of resource or thinking about ways of, of growing data, if it, as it were, um, is some ways to think about it. But I really like what you said about this kind of idea of human-centered design. And I think one of the things that resonated in that comment to me is that in all the data analytic models I do, I really try to make them human-centered too as well, which I, I know it sounds like a kind of strange idea, but I think it's what makes my work a bit different. And that I'll develop a model, and then I ask those who the model describes whether they think it describes them accurately or and ask them to then co-develop or change the model with me. So, for example that work that I did in China where we developed a model to identify you know, whether a community is thriving or not. Um, it really is important to have the people who live there help me uh, develop that and generate that model and then I can redesign the model and create better data analytics. But I also think by doing human-centered design that way with data analytics, you're also um, creating trust and transparency in the final output of what you produce. So I think it's really easy to um, mistrust data analytics because you don't know how it's developed. So if you kind of co-design those analytics, I think it has much more impact and much more ability to have a policy impact than you might think. So. Uh, again, with that example in China, we did even ask government officials to co-design it with us, not just the community. So um, a lot of the local planners saw it as a possibility to uh, make those communities that were empty better um, and kind of highlighted that issue. So I, 
I think co-design is uh, can be thought of in lots of different areas the way you wouldn't traditionally think about it. But from, from that brings up yeah. one thing I saw I think in reading about both of your work, which is this notion of ground truth thing, which for me seems crazy because we do human-centered design. We, we, we're on the ground first. Yeah. Um, so all of our assumptions are really kind of percolating from from the people and then up. And it sounds like you're kind of doing a hybrid model. And I'd love to talk about how the different research methods that you use kind of come together um, to create a kind of complex mapping of your understandings. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point, just building on what Sarah was saying about getting um, all the stakeholders involved in defining a problem and defining a research agenda. You know, often, at least in the domain where I work, it's um, academics in an ivory tower in the United States setting the research questions um, and defining the problems. And then, you know, you go to the people on the ground and it's completely irre- it's not a, not only completely irrelevant it's actually incomprehensible <laughs> to them um, so I think this um, process of ground truthing is actually you know a, definitely an essential part of what we do um, yeah yeah I mean I think that um, you know I call it ground truthing because it has this kind of fact-based evidence connotation to it but I really think of my process of data development as starting with uh, the people that it's describing from the onset. Um, And I would hope that um, I could get the stakeholders participate in the data analytics and collection from the onset, but sometimes that's hard to do. So I, I think like, for example, like the work that I did in Nairobi, I had asked the government and stakeholders to help me develop data on the informal transit system um, and I had workshops where I asked them to participate and people came, but they were largely disinterested. But then once we visualized the data, they became very interested, um, and then started to collaborate more and help us edit the process. So I think sometimes also, um, you know, like when you're designing a process, you know, it's, it's also how do you communicate the process, <laughs> the process people that you want to engage with too so yeah I mean it's interesting this I I mean just in thinking over how that process would play out in a context like Liberia again you know it's also interesting to think about how to design for extreme capacity constraints so this comes back to your original question about like free will and um, you know no matter how beautiful the visualization is or how parsimoniously the data are presented um, in during during the Ebola epidemic, the Liber- and, and the Liberian government, under the best of circumstances, has very limited capacity anyway, and so they just could not absorb like any information that was not, you know, sort of personally delivered, like in a few sentences, basically, like in you know face to face. So um, that was a really interesting experience for us. We had we had had this vision of, you know, crowdsourcing real time data about citizen needs on the ground and um, and having it delivered on a you know real time platform in terms of an app or a website and they just um, could not could not had didn't have the capacity to process it. And number two, um, the government officials themselves didn't trust necessarily the information, right? So we usually sort of think of ordinary people as not necessarily trusting the information or the source of the information, but in this case it was the the decision makers. Sarah, we've been talking a lot yeah. about work in the public sector, um, influencing, you know, 
massive groups of people, um, whole populations really. Um, can you speak a little bit about how your work is impacting the private sector or large companies that are also managing some of these data issues that you're dealing with? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that um, my lab is really interested in right now is the fact that you know roughly 80% of the data in the world right now is stored by private companies, and a lot of that data has a potential to be used for a public good, although it does have also a lot of potential to be used for evil purposes. I, I've always called the debate between the good and evil. Um, but what I'm really interested in is showing companies how they can use it for that kind of public good. So I've been working with a number of different large companies that have lots of data um, to think about how they can use it for development practices. Um, I think this is particularly important in some of the work that I've done in Africa where data doesn't exist. Um, um, I would say a lot of my work in Nairobi, just you know, basic population data doesn't exist, basic settlement data, basic information about income levels, and you know, just cell phone data can help us with populations every day, and if we can work with telecoms to get actual basic population data so that we, NGOs and other resources can, uh, other, I guess uh, aid communities can really target resources in a better way. Um, these private companies have that data. So um, I think also it would shake up the information control dynamic that's going on in a lot of developing countries. Like if we can produce population data, open it up freely um, for anyone to make decisions, um, it helps, I think, encourage um, some of the development practices that need to happen by government. Um, but big corporations have a lot of data that governments don't have in these contexts. And how can we create partnerships to allow that data to be used for uh, possible public good is something I'm really interested in. Yeah. I mean, I just building on that, you know, um, it is, again, as Sarah was saying, that true that most of these, most a lot of governments in developing contexts don't have the data collection capacities that either private companies or even NGOs working with researchers have. And what that what that means is that um, the, those who have data actually have more political power, more political resources, and um, it, gets, it can get them a seat at the political table, even in a place where democracy is not necessarily um, super strong or consolidated. Um, and so that actually makes it pretty powerful to be um, working with actors in these contexts on scientific research and data collection. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's very interesting to see how data, there's, there's a new kind of data-centered advocacy that is developing in these contexts. So the yeah. extension of this logic is if data can lead to political resources, that effectively data leads to power. Yep. So where do we, I mean, we talked about the the dark side versus the light side, or the good versus evil. I it's think it was yeah, it's I, like I went a, to a Jedi. Luke Skywalker yeah. versus Darth Vader. <laughs> where, where is that? Where is that taking us in, in this in this world when you start to play this out over the future? So, are you trying to you know, move forward as fast as possible? Are you trying to combat some of these forces? How do you position yourselves in the work of your lab? Yeah, I mean, I feel like any one data set could be used for the powers of good or evil. And I think the position of my lab is to provide examples of 
how it can be used to positive benefits, but also to ask people to critique the data they see to understand the negative effects. And so I think, you know, many of the projects that I've worked on in the lab, you could use the same visualization uh, for a positive benefit. So my work um, with Laura Kurgan on criminal justice, um, where we looked at the million, we looked at the cost of incarceration in the U.S. We found those blocks where we spend the most amount of money um, to incarcerate people. You know, you could use that to help uh, gain funds for those communities, which is ultimately what happened. Um, a lot of those communities got reentry funding, but. You could also think of those as targets for um, exclusion, right? And and so I think teaching people to look at uh, data set uh, for both sides and is important as data consumers, right? Like we, you know, I, I design with data all the time, but most people are consuming it. And how do we teach them to critique the data they consume is, I think, something we really need to think about in the future um, because it's uh, data f is a powerful tool. We believe it to be facts um, and it's uh, easy to be misled uh, by a graph, a chart, a map. And so how come uh, we grew to get? I think it's easier for me as an educator to kind of teach those skills um, as I teach my students to develop maps, but I've been really interested in data literacy in schools. I think it's I think it should be part of the school curriculum. And I actually worked on a data literacy project with the New York City public schools where we did we looked at actually the cost of the lottery and had high school students like we had every bodega in New York City, how much people win and how much people lose and allowed them to teach math skills, but we actually had them make maps and critique it and create kind of lessons around how do you talk about data. Um, and I think we don't often talk about data literacy as a skill that students need, but I think it is something that we need to think about in the future. And there's a public good from doing that and taking it down to that level. Um, from an educational perspective, I feel like both all of your your research comes together in that in that sense too right like you're both trying to do things that um both inform educate and uh provide new resources for the populations that you're talking to um what are the barriers to that i mean obviously new york public schools were really excited for you to come in and teach this teach the students but they're in some of the the populations you're talking about there 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 do have to be some barriers what have you seen there is so many barriers. Yeah, yeah. Part yeah. of it is, I mean, part of it is, of course, cost. You know, um, I mean, for you know, our partners are usually NGOs or community-based organizations in developing contexts, and there often just isn't a for-profit market for the kinds of data or evidence that um, that would most give them voice um, in. Um, getting what they need and getting authorities to deliver what um, they need, and so I think that there's a huge there's just a cost constraint actually. Um, um, I mean, I think there's also I mean I think there's a design problem, um, and I you know I think Sarah is one of these. P 
people who are trying to overcome that, but oftentimes um, civic technologies are not designed in a way that really takes into account um, the kinds of challenges that people on the ground face. So, you know, we had worked with an organization in Guatemala um, that was trying to use a platform um, that allows people to, you know, go to the health clinic and then text various codes if, like, the doctor's not there or the drugs are um, out of stock. And um, and even, like, a four-digit code was really not, like, doable. Like, you, you could give them a sheet with a bunch of four-digit codes, and that, for an indigenous population that was essentially illiterate, like, that was not going to work, even though it, if it had worked, it would have been awesome. <laughs> so that was number one. Number two, what was interesting about that um, initiative was that it's premised on the assumption that the government doesn't know that um, these health clinics are um, out of drugs or the doctors are not coming to work. And it, and it turns out that the government totally knows. So really, the root problem is not a lack of information um, or data. Um, you know, the government, it's the, the fact, the lack of political will. So it's a, fundamentally a political problem. And so then what, how do you design for that? Um, like how do you design the delivery of these data in a way that creates political pressure for the decision makers to do something? Um, so those are some of the constraints that, you know, we encounter. Um, yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with those, some of those constraints. The government knows there's a problem, but chooses to, mm -hmm. Ignored or not accepted. So it's how do you use data or visualization to help force force an organization to think about that? I think I mean there's also just you know basic barriers to access to let's say quality um, information. You know like think when um, we were working on the project in Nairobi to map the informal transit, the idea of like what a data set is. Is very different, like in different cultural contexts. Like, what is completeness? <laughs> like, um, like data standards. Um, but um, I think um, what I mean is surprising to me is though. I mean, the amount of will to overcome those barriers um, from private citizens like actors I think um, some of the work that we did in Nairobi there have been a number of um, let's say individual citizens that have like mapped their own Matatu route and then kind of joined us and um, you know while the government is creating a huge barrier to access to information there's kind of just a powerful will amongst the citizens to, to kind of overcome that. And I think that's where you want to tap into, um, that's what you want to tap into. I don't know, but it's, it's you know, I think governments limit, they have barriers to information and then they also purposely limit it because they don't want to expose things like what you're saying. They know that there's not enough mm -hmm. drugs. They don't want people to know that they know mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so now we're talking about the will of our of citizens. Um, Lily, you've done a lot of work on elections in the Philippines, Tanzania, Uganda, many locations. In terms of the will of the citizens, how does that has this changed your perception about um, elections here in the United States? <laughs> um, has it changed my perception of? Uh, no, but I, it has uh, made me realize that those who study the United States don't 
realize that we haven't fully realized. I think that that's changing, but haven't fully realized that the dynamics um, in the United States are very similar to the dynamics elsewhere. Um, and I mean, you know, once again, I think that generally there's this assumption that knowledge is produced in the United States and, you know, sort of exported elsewhere or that data are produced or data expertise are produced in the United States and then exported elsewhere. But and in a lot of ways, um, people who have studied, you know, the interaction between citizens and government in developing contexts or the problem of fake news or the problem of polarization, you know, those things have gone on for decades, sometimes centuries in other contexts. And so it's pretty much exactly the same. <laughs> you know, people um, in the United States, as in elsewhere, vote according to tribal lines. Like we are organized in tribes and we vote according to our tribal identities. Um, and we're susceptible to what our tribal leaders say is the truth. Um, and so we just um, accept what they say is truth um, without really having any, any empirical basis for evaluating what they say. That's the same in the United States. That's the, sa that's the same you know, in places in Asia and South America and, and Africa. So, um, so I wouldn't say that it's changed my perspective, but um, I, do th I, I, do, I do know that um, there's a lot to be gained from, from conceptualizing all of these dynamics is um, very more similar than we think. Yeah, and suddenly we see this the role of technology in the way that we perceive elections completely transforming, at least here, but perhaps in some of these other locations as well. It's, it's maybe it's a, just a, an awareness, but um, on some level, a, a, some sense of a connection between technology and the manipulation or the awareness or um, the perception of elections. I mean, I think it comes down to the, like, the change in the way that we consume information, right? And that's like why it's becoming more aware. I mean, the dynamic of the newspaper as the purveyor of information and let's say, um, you know, you know their biases based on the news, like long established um, background in which to frame the work that you're reading that's totally changed under, and that's why I think we're becoming more and more aware of it because the ability for us to be manipulated is so much easier because we're not reading it from this, uh, let's say, validated source that, you know, like whether it's the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, which used to be the old purveyors of information that have a certain kind of ethical background to um, right on and you know that the New York Times is a liberal paper and so you know what you're reading has that slant where we're reading things from blogs and social media and all these different outlets that don't we don't know uh, where they come from and I think I think that's the real um, we're kind of at that you know like at the turn of the century in newspapers we're at that kind of turn of the century moment with uh, blogs and social media and others like how do we um, create some kind of ethical responsibility for the public forum that's been established by those organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is also that, you know, people so far tend to, they, we don't know where, on social media or, um, you know, other new media platforms, we don't know where the information necessarily comes from, but we think we know. And yeah. that's the problem, because we think, we think of them as the same as a newspaper, but they are not, um, you know, like... Yeah, wait, they're not. And yeah. I was thinking about it the other day. I was on the train, and the woman across from me told me that she writes news articles for under a pen name, you know. Like, and so you think actually 
you're getting information from this purveyor but actually there's she told me there's six people that write under that same name so you think you're like somebody who reads that gets all the information from that but it's just because you know that blog wants to establish a personality for that person but it's too hard for that one person to be writing everything supposedly. <laughs> and I just thought, gosh, we really don't know how we're consuming information because that would never happen in a newspaper yet. It's like a, a blog that people go to. This, but this connection <laughs> between data literacy and news, it's basically you know the same, in effect, mm-hmm. the same thing, but we have different vocabulary that yeah. we need to use in order to, to teach it. Um, one obvious, as a just thinking about all of this work that you're doing, and it's incredibly diverse, but one area of overlap between the two of you is that obviously that you both work at MIT. Um, And many of us, or many people, I think, have an image of what research looks like at MIT, and they think of like lab coats and reactors and a bunch of old white dudes. And, you know, that's that's kind of an image, but I think you're both engaged in research um, that's participating in the real world. Uh, and I'd love to kind of hear you expand on your perceptions of how MIT specifically is supporting your work in that real world way. Mm. What's the relationship there? And maybe the thing that brings um, your research together. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, my lab is much more practice-based. I really like to work on and engage real problems and uh, work with different NGOs on, kind of really on the ground. I also really believe that in client-based learning and that students learn the best from real-world examples. So I think that um, a lot of my classes are kind of more uh, code, getting back to our original like kind of co-design classes where I work with a, a client and ask them about a partic- particular issue or social mission that they have and our students work on it together including them and embedding them in the class very much I, I'm i not sure if that's unique to MIT though or you know or if MIT just allows it to happen or is um, I, I, it, it probably is different from the maybe typical way we think of uh, education. Um, And I think MIT allows us to experiment. So maybe that's where it can be unique. Um, I think they also um, create a lot of areas in which we can partner um, on the ground. There's a lot of resources to develop partnerships, small seed grants and so forth. Um, But I also think the students push for it. And MIT is always, I think one thing that's very different from other places I've worked is that the students push the agenda um, quite a bit. And so the push for this kind of practically oriented learning, I think, also comes from their end as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for my field, actually, it is, MIT is very, very unusual in supporting um, the kind of research and work that we do. Um, normally, it seems strange, but in, normally political scientists do not interact with decision makers or practitioners <laughs> or real world <laughs> actors. And um, that, that, you know, um, it, there's just, there is very much a separation um, for better or worse. Um, you know, I think that I, I, I have, I really value being at MIT where um, if you are, as I'm interested in um, the behavior of ordinary citizens and how citizens interact with government and how government 
um, decision makers um, learn about citizen needs, it makes sense to talk to those actors, and not just to talk to those actors, but to work with those actors. Um, and MIT is a place where um, the idea that um, theoretically interesting problems come from um, working with real world actors and act asking them what the problems are is is you know taken for granted, but that's not necessarily true actually in other, I would say in other elite universities in my field. Um, so, um, so I think there's that. I think that this um, design-centered way of thinking about problems and research is also pretty unique to MIT. Um, you know, it's, it's, again, in my field, it's not common to think of um, how to design and redesign the relationship between citizens and government. Um, and that's something that um, MIT enables. There seems to be, um, in some sense, I think, w something that connects you, which is a sort of shared hopefulness, but maybe also a heavy level of skepticism um, in the areas that you're looking. Can you describe how you balance these, both in your personal research, the you know the activities you think about and you inspire, but also as you work with the teams of collaborators and researchers and students that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the premises or one of the, the motivations for um, those of us at MIT GovLab is that there are a lot of dysfunctions <laughs> in the whole world. There are a lot of dysfunctions in government and there are a lot of dysfunctions in societies. Um, and I think that um, it's important to remember that these dysfunctions don't result from the fact that um, you know bad, the people are bad. Um, and and I think that what we're really interested in is understanding how the um, institutional constraints um, can be restructured, or um, how again interactions between people can be redesigned and re-engineered so that um, you know people's best motivations can come to the surface. It's a really nice way to put it. <laughs> Dysfunction is very systematic, but. Um yeah, I mean, I think that I'm an optimist by nature, um, and I try to kind of um, push and think in order to change, uh, to develop change, you have to have that kind of optimism. Um, and I try to kind of go there first with my students, of, like the possibilities are endless, and then we can walk it back. Um, once we talk to different stakeholders and, you know, kind of in the collaboration. But um, I think that sometimes real innovation comes from um, not putting limitations on yourself um, and then kind of stepping back and adding adding the constraints that you do very much have, um, especially in resource-poor um, countries. Um, but really trying to work with that because there's a lot of innovation that come can come from not having enough resources as well. Well, great. Thank you both for being here. I mean, I, I hope that this conversation is the first of many between the two of you. I think it is the first time that you've actually spoken. Uh, and I can see lots of areas where you'll collaborate in the future. So thank you so much for being here. It was great seeing you again. And uh, thank you for yeah, bringing us thanks, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah seriously. Thanks thank to you. Continue. Until next time. Great. EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real.
because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Lily, Sarah, and Lee for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. This has been The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Thank you.